Good morning. So this sermon is about the King of Israel. And we're going to start out by reading about the first time he entered Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, claiming to be king. So turn with me to Matthew 21, and we will read verses 1 through 17. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out, all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, And the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So what we just read is called the triumphal entry. How many of you have heard it called the triumphal entry? Okay, most of you. If you hadn't heard, that's called the triumphal entry. And uh, how many of you have ever wondered why it was called the triumphal entry? Just a few. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you why it was called the triumphal entry anyway. All the rest of you either already know or just aren't curious. So why is it called that? Well, the word triumph has also been used to describe the entry of a victorious general into the city of Rome. Okay? A victorious general, meaning it's a celebration of a major victory. A triumphal entry into Jerusalem is what Jesus had. It should make us think of the Roman triumphs, though. So let's compare how Jesus enters Jerusalem to how the Roman emperors and generals would enter Rome. 
I'm going to read you a couple of descriptions of Roman triumphs. Here's the first one. It's just a summary written sometime in the last hundred years. Someone describing what a Roman triumph was like. They say a public slave rode with the victor, that's the general, in the chariot itself, holding over him the crown of precious stones set in gold. Thus arrayed, they entered the city, having at the head of the procession the spoils and the trophies and figures representing the captured forts, cities, mountains, rivers, lakes, and seas. Indeed, everything that had been taken. If one day did not suffice for the exhibition of these things in procession, the celebration was held during a second and a third day. When these had gone on their way, the victorious general arrived at the Roman Forum, and after commanding that some of the captives be led to prison and put to death, he rode up to the capital. So that's one description. I'm going to read another description. This one's by Plutarch, writing sometime around 100 AD, I'm guessing. And uh, he's describing a particular triumph. So that's a general description. Now I'm going to read a particular description of one triumph for a man named Aemilius. So Aemilius is reported to have triumphed in the following manner. The triumph lasted three days. On the first were to be seen the captured statues, paintings, and colossal images drawn upon 250 chariots. That's the first day. That's all for the whole day. Now, this is abridged, but you get the idea. On the second day was carried on many wagons the finest and richest armor of the Macedonians, both of bronze and iron, all newly polished and gleaming, the pieces of which were artistically arranged so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. (laughs) After these wagons bearing the armor, there proceeded 3,000 men who carried the coined silver in 750 vessels, each holding three talents and each carried by four men. Others brought silver bowls and drinking horns and flat bowls and wine cups, each well arranged for display and all extraordinary, as well for the size as for the thickness of their embossed work. That's the second day. On the third day, early in the morning, first proceeded the trumpeters, who did not sound like they were in solemn procession, but blew such a call as the Romans used when they encouraged themselves in battle. Next followed young men wearing tunics with purple borders, who led to the sacrifice 120 stalled oxen with gilded horns and heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. And with these were boys that carried basins for libations of silver and gold. Then after these came those carrying the gold coin, which was divided into vessels, each holding three talents, like those that contained the silver. The number of the vessels was 77. 
These were followed by those that brought the consecrated bull made of ten talents of gold set with precious stones. Then more gold plating used at Perseus' table. Who is Perseus? Perseus is the defeated king. Next to these came Perseus' chariot and his armor, and lying on that, his diadem. And after a little intermission, the king's children were led as captives, and with them a train of their personal attendants and teachers, all shedding tears and stretching out their hands to the spectators, and showing the children also how to beg and entreat their compassion. After his children and their attendants came Perseus himself, the defeated king, altogether stunned, deprived of reason by the greatness of his misfortunes. Next followed a great company of his friends and intimates whose countenances were disfigured with grief. After these were carried 400 golden crowns sent from the cities by embassies to Aemilius in honor of his victory. Then he himself came, mounted on a chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in purple robe, interwoven with gold, and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. And then the army. What do you think of the triumph of a Roman general? It's pretty impressive, isn't it? It took three days... How does it compare to Jesus' triumphal entry? Well, let's compare and contrast, shall we? Jesus didn't ride in a chariot, did he? Didn't ride on a horse. He rode on a donkey and he didn't even have a saddle. There were no riches and glorious displays for Jesus. Jesus' attendants weren't numerous or impressive. I read about another triumph where the emperor handpicked 7,000 of the most impressive captives to be part of his triumph. Who did Jesus have? A ragtag group of 12 men? Jesus hadn't conquered anybody, had he? He didn't even have an army. There were no captives. There were no executions. That was always part of the triumph. At the end, the king was executed. There weren't pictures of Jesus performing mighty deeds in war. The city didn't even know he was coming. They didn't have a chance to prepare. The important men of the city didn't honor him. People of the city didn't even know who he was, did they? They had to ask. For a Roman triumph, it's described that 
Not a single person in the city was not at the triumph. They all knew who it was. They all knew what was going on. In the passage we read, they're all going, who's that? What's going on? So what did Jesus have that a Roman emperor didn't? Well, he was poor. That's different, isn't it? He was humble. Very different. Even more different. He was surrounded by the poor and the humble. The lame, the blind, and children. And not his own children. He also had something fairly unique. He had the power to heal. You don't see that happening at a Roman triumph. So how are they similar? Well, they are similar in a couple of ways. They both stop at a temple to deliver judgment. They both have the leaders jealous of them. That's something we see all the time with Jesus, that the religious leaders are jealous. And if you read about Roman generals, there are always people jealous of them too. They both have people willing to confer the title of king on them. But there's something fundamentally different between the two, isn't there? You can tell in the description they're completely different. So what is the fundamental difference between Jesus' triumphal entry and the triumph of a Roman general? Jesus described the difference this way. My kingdom is not of this world. But he is a king, isn't he? What does it mean that Jesus is king? Well, let's look at our text again. It gives us the answer in two ways of what it means that Jesus is a king. First, it gives us the answer by quoting prophecies about the coming king. And then it describes the actions of the people when he came. So let's look at the quotes. First one is in verse 5. It's a quote from Zechariah. So actually, let's go to Zechariah. We'll read it directly in Zechariah. Chapter 9, and I'll read verses 9 through 11. And we'll spend a little bit of time on this passage. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit." You see the commands at the beginning of that passage? Right in verse 9. Two commands. Rejoice greatly and shout in triumph. Now the people of Israel did just that. Right? They were rejoicing and shouting. It's exactly what the command was right before what they quote. 
Then they quote, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is the prophecy that's fulfilled, right? So they're celebrating. Celebrating why, though? Celebrating because the long-awaited king is finally come. But more importantly, they're actually celebrating more than just the arrival of the king. They're celebrating what kind of king he is. So what kind of king is he? Well, this passage in Zechariah describes him with a number of different characteristics. The first one we come to is he is called just. Nobody desires a wicked king, do they? How many of you desire a wicked king? Show of hands. Good. Nobody. Okay. No one wants a wicked king. How many of you want a king? Yeah, a couple of you, right? And those of you who want a king, how many of you want a just king? Everyone put your hands down low. How do I know you don't want a just king? Well, I know you don't want a just king because you don't want a king. How could you want a just king if you don't want a king? Why don't you want a king? Well, you don't want a king because a king has authority. We don't want to hear that Jesus is a king at all. We want to hear that Jesus is a meek lamb. Is Jesus a meek lamb? Yes. Is that all that Jesus is? No. Jesus is a just king. One of the things that's really wonderful that I really love about our band is that they don't let us forget that Jesus has three offices. Now, what are the offices of Jesus? Well, he's called prophet, priest, and king. And I realized as I was preparing for the sermon that most of the time you're going to run into music that talks about Jesus as a priest and never anything about him being a prophet or a king. And then I realized that's what I love about our band. That they also tell us and remind us that Jesus is also a prophet and also a king. When they tell us he's a prophet, they warn us to turn away from our wicked ways. And when they tell us he's a king, they tell us that he's been given the authority to judge all things and that he's leading a war to expand his kingdom. So how is Jesus a just king in this text? Well, look at verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. That's Jesus being a just king. You see what just means? means that he's making a decision, a judgment between right and wrong. He's a, a just king judges between two people. One of them is going to lose. 
right? And that's why we don't want to hear about Jesus being a just king, because we don't want to think about him judging. But what's the first thing that we see him described as? We see him described as just. And what's the first thing we see him do? Entering the temple and making a judgment. And what does he do? He casts out those wicked men who are pretending to be his allies. Now, I know you've seen this before. People pretending to be friends with the rich, famous, and powerful. Right? How many of you have tried to do it yourself? I've done that, right? Oh, no, I've met him. Yeah. I was across, I saw him at the grocery store. Isn't that impressive? Went to school with him when I was six. Proud of that. What does Jesus do? People who are pretending to be his friends, he knows the difference, doesn't he? And he doesn't just know the difference, he casts them out of the temple. He casts out those men who are out to make a quick buck by claiming that they're doing God's work. He casts out the wicked men who are promoting their own kingdom and not his kingdom. He can tell the difference. Now, what else is this king like? Well, the next thing it says is that he's endowed with salvation. Endowed with salvation. He offers his people salvation. How do we see it in our text? Well, we see it by the work that he does right after he makes his just judgments. What does he do right after that? He heals the blind and the lame, doesn't he? He sits down and heals the blind and the lame in the temple. He's endowed with salvation. The king cares for his people. He heals them and saves them. Now let me make a quick point here. It's impossible for Jesus to have sat down in the temple and healed all the blind and the lame that came to him if he had not cast out the wicked men who were changing money and filling the temple with animals to sell. Do you understand that? Why couldn't he have done that? Why couldn't he have just ignored those people and not been a just king and instead just been a king endowed with salvation? Well, in our story, because there's no room. You've got to clean out the temple to make room for the blind and the lame, don't you? He purified the temple in order for it to be used for godly work. Until it was purified, it couldn't be used for godly work. It was being used for ungodly work. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we can't have God, we can't have Jesus as a merciful, saving God unless we also have him as a just God, a just king. Until he makes the judgments between the rich and the proud and the powerful who are serving their own kingdom 
and the blind and the lame who have come to hear about Jesus' kingdom. Until that distinction is made, you can't have him focus on that second group. How else is he described? He's described as humble. How often do you hear a king described as humble? Well, here's once, anyway. How is he humble in this text? Well, he doesn't come on a proud stallion. He comes on a donkey. That's to start with. He doesn't surround himself with the rich and powerful. Basically, everything that he could have done, like the Roman emperors and generals did, he didn't do. That was his humility. That was him being humble. So he comes and he's humble. He surrounds himself with the weak and poor. That's humble. That's what we're called to do. And he comes for his people. Right? Why did he come? He came in to heal them and save them, to offer salvation. How else is he humble? He doesn't correct them when they get his credentials wrong. Did you notice that in the text? When they get his credentials wrong? Everyone asks, who is this guy? They say, he's a prophet from Nazareth. What could he have said? No, 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 no. I'm a king from Bethlehem. Doesn't bother correcting him, does he? Credentials aren't so important, are they? At least not when you're humble. What else does he do to be humble? Well, he's approachable. What do I mean by approachable? I mean that he placed himself low in the temple, not up high on a pedestal where it was difficult for people to get to him. How do I know where he was in the temple? Because the blind and the lame found him and got to him. It's got to be approachable for the blind and the lame to get to him, doesn't he? All of this is part of his being humble king. The prophecy that we read continues on and it lists a number of other attributes. It says that he speaks peace to the nations. It says that he sets prisoners free from the pit. That's what comes next. Come back next week. Hear about how he does it. Now, how should we respond to this king, this just king, who brings salvation and is humble? Well, the Jews got it just right, believe it or not. They did exactly what they were commanded to do. Verse 9 The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So by calling him the Son of David, what are they doing? They're making him king. 
Son of David is just a phrase. It's a name. It stands for king. The king. The king who would come and reign forever. So the first thing they do, they acknowledge him as king. What else do they do? Well, they quote Psalm 118. So let's go there. Let's turn to Psalm 118 and read some more of it. And I want you to pay attention to the attitude of the psalmist as I read this to you. What's the attitude? I'll give you a clue. The attitude of the psalmist is also the same as the attitude of the Jews when they quote it. So I'm going to read verses nine, starting at verse 19 of Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. If you had to use one word to describe that, the attitude of the psalmist, what word would you use? Joy? What else? Thankfulness, right? Joy or thankfulness. Notice how many times the psalmist gave thanks. One, two, three, four, four or five. Why is he giving thanks? Why is he rejoicing? Well, he's rejoicing, giving thanks to God for the wonderful work that he has done. So what is the wonderful work? Sending the king. Right? That's what we're asking. How should we respond to the fact that this king has come? Well, we should respond the way the psalmist responds, rejoicing that this king has come. How must we not respond? Well, we must not respond the way the chief priests and the scribes responded. How did they respond? They got indignant, didn't they? Now let me ask you a question. Look at what this king has done. Just in this passage, look at what this king has done. And tell me, how can you be indignant at what he's done? Healing the blind and the lame? 
Does that sound like something to get indignant over? No. It's wonderful. It's something to praise God for. Kicking out the toadies. Is that something to get indignant over? No. It's like, finally, someone's seen what these people really are and got rid of them. Why are they so indignant? They're not indignant over the fact that he's healing the blind and the lame. They're not even indignant that he kicked out the people who were buying and selling. What really gets them indignant is the fact that he accepts the worship and praise of the children. Do you notice that in the text? That's where they get indignant. And so what do we learn? Well, we learn from them not to get indignant, but we learn more than that. We learn that one of the things we have to do with this king is we have to give him our hearts. If we don't give him our heart, we'll have no joy in him coming. In fact, we'll be indignant that he demands people worship him. How else should we respond? We rejoice, we give thanks. Now, notice at the end, who's left rejoicing and giving thanks? It's just the children, isn't it? Maybe the blind and the lame, but it doesn't say them. It's talking about the children. And it says that they were still repeating some stuff. Earlier in the service, we were led by the children saying those things, right? You remember? They all walked down, waving the branches. And what were they saying? Hosanna in the highest. And they sang a song and led us in worship and thankfulness. Now, where do you think they learned to do that? It just spontaneously happened, didn't it? They all just decided that they ought to worship the king, right? No. You know kids. Where do they learn? They learn from their parents, don't they? They watch, and they learn, and then they imitate. So teach your children. Teach your children to rejoice and give thanks. Teach your children to give their heart to this king. How do you do that? Well, the only way that these kids learned was by seeing their parents do it. So now think about it. You got all the kids coming in with palm branches, walking up the aisles, waving the palm branches and yelling. And now I want you to think about you doing it. And you all feel really awkward, don't you? Because the reality is that we don't want to. We don't want to worship the king. We don't want to rejoice. 
We don't want to have to do anything. It's nice that they can do all of that for us and that they can have a teacher to teach them how to do it with enough gusto that it sounds real. Do we even know what the word Hosanna means? Where it comes from? Why they're using it? No. doesn't matter. It's a children's parade thing, you know, and it's just so that we can see the kids. No, it's not so we can see the kids. They are imitating us. They are to be learning from us to worship joyfully. So when you're in church, worship joyfully and your children will learn to worship joyfully. And when you're at home, thank Him. Give thanks and they will learn to give thanks to Him. Give Him your heart and your children will learn to give Him their hearts. And then, they'll keep doing it. And they'll keep doing it. And pretty soon they'll be doing it when you're not doing it. And it'll be really irritating, won't it? Because then they'll be reminding you and teaching you. There's one last thing I want to point out about what we're to do in response to this king. If you think way back, the beginning of Matthew, this same king taught us how to pray. And when he taught us how to pray, one of the things that he told us we were to pray for was that his kingdom would come. And this is his triumphal entry. It ought to remind us of that prayer. When we hear the Israelites back in Psalms, way back at the time of David, praying, send prosperity, they're praying that his kingdom would come, that his kingdom would come and be blessed and expand. And so we're to give ourselves to the work of expanding his kingdom. We're to pray towards that end, work towards that end, rejoice when more people are brought into that kingdom. Right? That's part of what we're rejoicing about. It's part of what we're giving thanks to God for. So our text ends, and it ends with the children still praising Him as He leaves, rebukes the religious leaders, and goes home for the night. how does it end for us? Well, here we are this morning, and we're not done yet. The beautiful thing is that we now get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And after that, we get to sing. So let me encourage you to worship the Lord with gratefulness, joy, Pray to Him with sincerity. Teach your children to do these things throughout the rest of this service and in the coming months and years. On and on and on. It's an ongoing work. But it has to be rejoicing because this King has indeed come.
Let's pray.